0: Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. and I'm also the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, and if you want to find out why over 50 members have already subscribed, or 50-plus now We're closing in closer to that 60 mark at this point in time. Why they have all signed up. You can find out for a seven day free trial. Check the link in the description below. If you enjoy breaking down fights, predicting fights, analyzing fights, and making your own breakdowns at the end of the day, The Fight Archive has you covered in terms of having all direct links to past fights for these upcoming events, not just the UFC, but a bunch of regional shows as well. So you can take full advantage of that. Check it out for free. Like I said, again, with a seven day free trial link in the description below. Quickly, right off the bat, I just want to apologize for the lack of mic. I've actually sold my mic for... uh, you know downgrading roughly if you want to call it that if you guys remembered I had the Shure SM7B I think it was a little bit too fancy for my liking especially with the mixer I was using not working the greatest so I've uh, downgraded to the uh, MV7 which is more reliable for podcasters and streamers uh, but I'm just waiting for it in the mail so uh, you guys are just going to get the shitty quality for now in terms of the audio uh, for the rest of this week but the next week I should have that mic ready to go set up and uh, you guys can hear my voice a little bit better. So I appreciate you guys bearing with me, especially bearing with me through all the audio issues I've had over the last couple of years, trying to figure out how to master that goddamn microphone, but there was just no way for me to do so. But luckily I found a perfect solution and I am taking full advantage of it. So uh, hopefully we can get that going next week. Um, Another apologies in terms of the delay and tardiness of the podcast this week. I gotta be honest, guys. I was having trouble kicking myself into gear to really get the rest of this studying done. Um, you know, not to mention in terms of keeping up with the fight Archive where we have, uh, I believe five or six regional events alone this week, which I'm trying to post profiles for so people can get studying on those profiles but like I was getting through fights and just not really just zoning in the way that I like to. And I don't like giving half ass breakdowns either. You know, I finally got through it all by Wednesday evening. I'm shooting this podcast on Thursday morning slash afternoon. Um, but I got it done. I'm still going to release the other segments as normal. You'll see the lock of the night and top three dog of the night uh, candidate videos dropping later this evening. And then the Locky two-step and the three best uh, prop bets uh, video dropping on Friday. Um, also, I'll be breaking down the LFA strictly on the Patreon. So if you want to check that out, check the link in the description below. But Let's get through the quick recap before we get into the breakdowns for UFC Paris. Uh, lock of the Night prediction didn't go that great last week uh, with uh, me getting, uh, you know... Well, what's the term? Uh, screwed. <laughs> By believing in the Rolando Bedoya hype. You know, I thought he, he did a decent job in that fight, but he just didn't really... Put together his punches the way that I expected him to. He's doing a great job with the leg kicks, but I wish he was a little bit more aggressive in terms of throwing his output. Uh, so I got Honey Dick there. Um, so we end up losing on the lock of the night prediction there. We did kind of make up for it with Carlos Proches on the contenders race this past week, but still uh, very bitter about uh, falling short on Bedoya. But that brings our lock of the night prediction record on the year to 73 23 for a 76% hit rate, which I'm still happy about. Want to get to that 80%, but 76, not that bad either. Dog of the night, Kind of shit the bed again as well with uh, Jarno Aarons? Uh, Anthony Smith was another uh, candidate that I had uh, and was pretty high on and should have pulled the trigger there. But I ended up going with Aarons. Really expected him to kind of get his grappling going a little bit more and thought he would be a little bit more aggressive. But Sungwo Choi was on one. He knew his job was on the line and he was able to get the job done that night. So shout out to anybody that took the uh, the Choi favorite money there. Uh, we did kind of bounce back on the contender series this past week with Marco Tulio Silva going out there not getting the contract, but still going out there and having a good enough performance that he was able to get his hand raised and were able to cash that ticket. So our dog of the night prediction record now is at 39 and 57 for a 41% hit rate. I believe we're pretty much in the black profit wise in terms of the dog of the night. If you wanna get the exact record, check out the dog of the night candidate video that I dropped later this evening. And as I said, LFA, if you're looking for LFA 166 breakdowns strictly on the Patreon, link for that is in the description below. Uh, and then shout out lastly to the Godzilla wins team over there providing me a platform to still drop written breakdowns for for the public. Uh, so, my main event breakdown and my three best moneyline bets also drop on Godzilla Wins. I'll have the links to those in the description below once they've been posted. All right, without wasting any more time, let's get right into the breakdowns. We got an 11 fight card going down from the second event that the UFC is throwing in at Petty. Uh, first fight, obviously, we got a ton of. Um, uh, French fighters sprinkled throughout this card. And that is the case in this first fight between Zara Farron and Jacqueline Cavalcanti, this is actually a catchweight bout of 140 f- 40 pounds. I believe this is a short notice spot for Cavalcanti, hence the catchweight there. But that's going to work in the favor of Farron, who has missed weight on her last two attempts, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it was Farron that missed weight. Um, oh, sorry, it was Jocelyn Edwards. But Farron has had her share of issues on the scale. So I'm sure she's more than happy to only have to cut 140 pounds or to get to that 140 pound limit for this matchup. She's on a rough run right now. She's on three in the UFC. She's had a bunch of fights fallout she even had to pull out of the fights pretty late because of her weight cutting issues Uh, but she's going to be buoyed by the French crowd this weekend as she takes on the Portuguese now American fighter Jacqueline Cavalcanti. Farron at her best is a great range kickboxing striker however she had some issues trying to implement that game against Josiane Nunes last time around who she had a six inch height advantage over. It was hysterical to watch, considering that it looked like, a, you know, something out of Pride, where we had two women that were just completely different sizes. But the smaller smaller woman ended up winning because she was able to land the more impactful shots. And she did a great job in terms of being the bull that night. And Fairn was not a great matador, hence why she ended up losing that fight. But she had some decent moments in the beginning of that fight. Um... I think that Firmin is not as bad as her 6-5 and five record indicates, which is why I'm kind of surprised that the line is as wide as it is here for Cavalcanti. She's making her UFC debut after coming over as the LFA Bantamweight Champion and she was able to secure that title with a win over Melissa Crowden earlier this year. She went the full five rounds that night and she used a disciplined and tactical striking approach to hurt Crowden over those 25 minutes and eventually get her hand raised, like I said, by decision. She's an opportunistic striker and at times that makes her be a low volume striker. I believe she will be better off faring as a grappler in this matchup as Farron has really struggled Struggled in that aspect of the MMA game but more often than not we see Cavalcante just being patient and waiting for her moments to explode in the striking realm and I think that could get her in trouble here so I wouldn't be so privy in terms of jumping on the chalk heavy spot on Cavalcanti here no matter how bad Zara Farron has been looking as of late but I'm gonna I'm probably going to be in the minority for this one. But I'm going to go with the Ferenc side here. You know, plus 285 for a fight that I believe is going to be very close. It's women's MMA, lower level women's MMA at this point in time as well. And if Cavalcanti wants to go out there with that slow, methodical striking approach, Ferenc could absolutely put the numbers on her, right? Even though she lost a fight to Josiane Nunes, she she outstruck her by 15 significant strikes. She was still in the triple digits in terms of strikes. And she could do that here against Cavalcanti, who's not as aggressive as Josiane Nunes. Is. So she's not really giving her many opp- giving herself many opportunities to try to get that win or to try to hurt her opponent, uh, which is why I kind of like Farron here. I would only take like a half minute shot on the spot again. Low level women's MMA, big fate or big underdog, uh, but the underdog that has way better experience in my opinion as well. So I'm gonna go with Farron to kick off the card as the underdog, and I think she gets it done via decision. Next up, we'll go over to the Bantamweight division for the men's, and we're gonna go with Farid Bashrat going up against Clayton Rodriguez. Now, Bashrat is a 10-0 prospect who has been looking exceptional throughout his UFC career thus far. He's 1-0 with that lone victory coming against DeMont Blackshear, which is starting to age pretty well considering how good Blackshear has been looking as of late. But Farid, I had long said, is the lesser skilled. Uh, brother in the Bashar brothers, obviously Javid being his brother, but Farid is showing off some pretty good skills. You know, Javid looks more so to just keep fights in the striking realm, whereas Farid doesn't mind blending his wrestling behind his striking, which makes him so successful and allows him to stay safe. He has a very slick boxing, kickboxing game, where he's able to touch his opponents up from distance, and then when he gets their guards high, he changes levels, gets the fights to the ground. Not only does he have a good double leg, but he also has some good trips and sneaky hip throws that he can... uh, execute in the clinch range and I think that's going to be important for him here against a guy like Clayton Rodriguez who's being forced off a weight class here. You know, he was supposed to fight Tatsuro Tyra earlier this year, but unfortunately missed weight, and uh, that fight ended up being cancelled. And it seems like the UFC has forced Clayton to move up a division here, which is not going to bode well for him. He's at a 2-inch height disadvantage, as well as a 4-inch reach disadvantage in this matchup. And Fareed does a great job in terms of establishing his range. But I think it's going to be important for him to get this fight into the clinch room, really wear on Rodriguez, who has been known to have a gas tank issue. And then from there, I fully expect Bashra to start taking this fight to the ground and taking advantage of that card you wish that Rodriguez as. Don't get me wrong. Rodriguez is a fun fighter, right? There was a reason he was a minus 300 favorite going into that fight against CJ Vergara, which he ended up losing, But the guy is, you know, very dangerous in the striking realm, has some nasty jiu-jitsu, nasty striking, good power in his hands as well. But it just showcases now that as he's taking steps up in competition, it's going to get harder for him to finish, guys, which ultimately brings to light his cardio issues. And I think that's going to be the case here against Fareed Basharat. So I like the chalk on Basharat. if I'm being honest. If you want to hedge anything here, maybe Clayton round one. But if this fight escapes that first round, I won't have any worries on the Fareed Basharat side here. I, I like Basharat round three I think that's going to be a good spot To kind of take a sprinkle on For big plus money But I don't mind the uh, chalk here On Basharat either So look for Basharat to Extend his winning streak and undefeated record To 11-0 this And 11-0 this weekend Next up Sticking with the Bantamweights But flipping over to the genders uh, Going over to the females We got UFC debutante Nora Cornell I believe that's how you pronounce her name She's going up against Jocelyn Edwards this fight is kind of a pick on with Edwards taking a little bit more money over the last couple days, but still nothing more than minus 120. Cornell is a very um, aggressive fighter. She's on a five-fight winning streak, I believe, at this point in time. The only loss she has on her record, uh, sorry, six-fight winning streak, the only loss she has on her record is against the woman fighting in the first fight of the night, uh, Jacqueline Cavalcanti. That night we, sh- we saw how the aggressive style of Nora can be used against her with a fighter that is a little bit more technically savvy in terms of the striking run. Nora likes to kind of just, you know, blitz forward, throw big shots, um, likes to take fights to the ground and do some big work from on top, but she's been doing it against very low level opponents. The last time we saw her actually deal with diversity was in her last matchup, but luckily for her, she was able to kind of knee stomp um, Her opponent and her opponent kind of injured herself. It seemed like and she just called the fight off only like halfway through that first round But for those two and a half minutes her opponent was landing good shots on her You know, there are a couple of strikes that a commentator was kind of just overblowing in my opinion But there were uh, you know instances where it seemed like Nora was a little bit gunshot You know, she was getting hit and she was just like, oh, you know, this is what resistance feels like I don't really like it and I think that's what she's going to face here in Jocelyn Edwards. Now, Nora can have success if she's looking for an aggressive grappling game, looking to take this fight to the ground. But I'm not completely sold on her ability to control opponents at the higher levels, uh, like uh, Jocelyn Edwards. And that's kind of been the kryptonite of Edwards' game, is she's kind of struggled when fighters look for that aggressive, str- um Uh, wrestling game. But we saw some good improvements in the the Lucy Pudilova fight, right? Like the the last round, she was able to stuff all three takedowns from Pudilova, keep that fight in the striking round and utilize her distance striking, which she's kind of been known to do. Um, She moves laterally very well. She uses her kicks very well to keep her opponents at range. And I think that's going to help her in this matchup uh, against Nora, who's going to be looking to be aggressive and trying to close that pocket. But as Edward starts landing more and more, that's where we'll start to see Nora start to get demoralized a bit. And I kind of question Nora's ability to go a hard 15 minutes, especially when she's getting chipped away at the entire time. So I'm going to lean with a UFC uh, veteran here in Jocelyn Edwards. As much as I scored the Pudilova fight against her last time around and still kind of bitter that I didn't get to cash that ticket, I still think that she's able to go out there, extend her winning streak to four here, and pull off the decision victory against Nora Cornell. All right. Next up, we're going to move over to the welterweight division, where we got Anj going up against Reese McKee. Anj coming in as the minus 170-ish favorite in this matchup. Uh, picked up a big win over AJ Fletcher last time around, but I really think that was a great stylistic m- matchup for him. In the fact that AJ couldn't really get his wrestling going, Lusa was the clearly better striker, which is kind of what he's been known for. For the most part, he's explosive, he's athletic, he has some good speed early in fights. But we see that productivity really start to drop off in the second and third rounds, which is where he found himself in a lot of trouble against AJ Fletcher in that second round where he nearly got finished. Uh, You know, I wouldn't have even been surprised if that fight ended up being scored a draw because of how close Luso was uh, was close to being finished. Um, You know, he's exchanged wins and losses over his last five fights, even six fights, I believe. He came up short against Jack Della Maddalena in the contender series in 2021. Picked up a a win over a UFC veteran on the regional scene and then got the short notice call up against Manuil The What I'm finding to be the trend here, though, is whenever Lusa fights a guy that has technically better striking or even somebody that can compete with him in the striking or even be better than him... That's where he comes up short, right? The Jack De La Del- fight and the Munir Lizette's fight. He couldn't get into his groove. He's fighting a guy on Reese McKee who loves output and loves volume. There might be a little bit of a question mark on Reese McKee's durability, but I think that if he can survive that early onslaught or survive the early advantage that Lusa will have here, we'll see McKee start to come on stronger and really push the pressure on Lusa and pull away with this fight late. And talk about a guy that had to really, you know, kind of got screwed by the UFC a couple of years ago, but luckily they are able to bring him back. But um, if you guys remember, he was brought in on like a week's notice against Hamza Chemaev because Chemaev wanted to fight like twice or something in the span of a week or two weeks uh, during the Fight Island days. He accepted the fight. You got finished in the first round. Can you blame the guy? He's mainly a striker. His defensive wrestling is kind of improving, but going up against Hamzat Shmaev on short notice, no bueno, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna work. His next fight, he had a full training camp against Alex Morono, and those boys went to war. They combined for over 380 significant strikes, landed over 15 minutes, and then the UFC cut him. Like, you gotta give Rhys McKee a little bit more rope especially considering the favorite that he did for them in the Hamza Maya fight before that and the Alex Morona fight wasn't that you know it wasn't like a complete wipeout it was a great fight back and forth fight a war UFC still decided to let him go which was very unfortunate uh, but I'm glad that he went back to Cage Warriors got three pretty solid victories where he was able to capture the welterweight title for Cage Warriors defend it once and now he gets called back up to the UFC more than deserving of this opportunity as well he, he's a volume striker, loves to kind of stalk his opponents, and he gets stronger as fights go on, which is why you see him getting in late finishes uh, in rounds three and even round four, I believe was one of those wins as well. Um, that's his style. And I feel like Lusa is just going to have trouble trying to keep up with that style, trying to keep up with the volume. And if he can't get McKee out of there early, I feel like McKee really pulls away late. So, you know, Plus 450, uh, sorry, plus 450, what am I talking about? Plus 145, plus 150 on a guy like McKee, I think is a damn good spot. Especially against the guy in Luso, who I'm still not completely sold on. So give me McKee, uh, round three as well. Uh, Yeah, I feel pretty good about McKee in this spot. All right, next up, we got... Taylor Lapulis going up against Colin Lorraine uh in a bantamweight matchup. UFC debut for both guys, but Taylor Laplace has actually been in the UFC in the past. He was three and one in the UFC between 2015 and 2016, and then for some reason he was let go. However, he more than proved himself after that as he ended up going 7-1 and one since being released from the UFC, capturing the TKO and Ares FC titles on while uh, he was away from the UFC. And now he finds himself back. And what better event to bring him back than the UFC's second trip back to Paris? Uh, he was actually scheduled to fight on the last uh, Paris event last year as well. But unfortunately, he got injured. He was sat out for a while. And now he's back to uh to make his second run in the UFC gone. Uh, He's 31 years old, he's in his prime now. He does a great job utilizing his length and his speed and his distance striking, which usually keeps his opponents at bay. He has a great kicking game, which really allows his, uh, him to, like I said, keep his opponents at bay. And he's even finished Nate Maness um, with kicks pretty much for two and a half rounds, and then eventually finished him in that third round with a beautiful side kick to the body. Uh, he's, he's beaten a lot of good opponents and named opponents during this run outside the UFC as well. Josh Hill, Nate Maness, Marcos Breno, and um, Wilson Hayes, just to name a few of those guys. So he's been doing some pretty damn good work outside of the UFC and more than deserving of this callback. On the flip side, he's going up against uh, Cage Warriors Bantamweight champion, Kowlin Lorraine, uh, a f- fighter with a huge following in Ireland. And you should have seen the scenes when he went out there and got the victory last time around to capture the Cage Warriors title. He trains at a team, Kowban, which was mainly known for Darren Till, but also his wrestling coaches, Mike Grundy. And that's usually the style that you see him imply or implement in his fights. He's great in terms of just taking his opponents to the ground and doing big work from on top. You know, he's finished all but one of his opponents, uh, that seven uh, finishes that he has on his record. He's only 27 years old, and it seems like his striking is improving too. The one knock I'd say on him is his kind of you know lack of speed in the striking run. But he makes up for it with pressure and combinations. So even if it's not that first or second shot that hits you, the third one will. And he keeps a nice high tight guard, which really allows him to protect his chin and prolong his durability throughout fights. Um, I think he just needed a little bit more grooming on the regional scene before making the jump, though. That's where I feel like he's going to kind of struggle here against a guy like Taylor Lapoulos, who... Is going to be a little bit too fast for him, right? I have concerns about Lapulista's takedown defense, but I think that he does a good enough job in terms of working back to his feet and then landing good enough damage of his own to make it look good enough for the judges or eventually get a finish of his own, just as he did in the Josh Hill fight and a couple of other fights where opponents of uh, Wilson Hayes, all guys who were trying to grapple him, but he was able to outstrike them and do good work of his own. Cowlin... Looks very promising. He looks like he could be a top-level prospect. However, I think this is too much for him too soon. You know, his originally scheduled opponent probably was a better matchup for him. But now going up against a veteran like Taylor Laplace, who has seen guys like Howland in the past, I don't think that this is the greatest matchup for him. So I'm going to go with the Frenchman here. I'm going to go with Taylor Laplace to get his hand raised. And I think he gets it done via... um I want to say KO. Like, I think that the speed advantage for Laplace will be too much for uh, Cowan, And we haven't really seen Cowan go late. And I have some question marks about his cardio. Um, So I'm going to go with Laplace by KO. I think he stops the Irishman here uh, and, and gets his hand raised. All right, next up, probably the most anticipated UFC debut, at least for Frenchmen. We got Morgan Sherrier going up against Manolo Zucchini in the featherweight division. Now Sherrier is on a 3-5 winning streak, but he was at the peak of his hype in 2020 when he captured the title. Um, I believe he beat Steve Amable that night. He won the featherweight cage warriors champion. And, I, you know, everybody was talking about him. You know, he seemed like the next big thing out of cage warriors. Then he went on to lose his next two fights. The two issues that he had in those fights was the fact that he slowed down drastically late in those fights, and his opponents were really start to ta- were really able to take over. You know, he's won three straight fights since then, but the lack of competition in those fights not really the greatest. He's a low level striker with some decent power and some you know good um, accuracy, but he also does a lot of great work when he's able to take his opponents to the ground. The spots that he is most um, effective in is when he is actually able to set the pace. If opponents allow him to set the pace, then he can just kind of go at his own pace. He doesn't have to worry about his cardio, and he can just kind of just throw his elbow when he needs to. And that's where I think he's going to really struggle, uh fighting guys that won't let him dictate the pace. But luckily, the UFC has matched it up correctly here with an Italian fighter who isn't really anything special. He looks to be a striker, you know, he has some decent power, but he doesn't have the greatest takedown defense. And that's where I think that Charrier is going to be able to really... Uh, really take over and really take advantage of a guy like Zucchini. So I, I like Sherrier here. I think that Sherrier will, you know, I'm not huge on his money line. I might have throw him in a parlay or two, but, you know, I just have. Issues about his cardio and how he looks late in fights. But I feel like the UFC is doing him the the perfect layup here. They're, they're, giving him, they're lobbying him the ball so that he can go out there and get a big win in front of his hometown crowd. So I'm going to go with Cherrier. Uh, he can either finish this fight on the ground or win by decision. This is a perfect matchup for him. If he fumbles this one, you know, I, I, one thing that I said in my Patreon breakdown was that I felt like he is similar to Paddy Pimblett And the fact that his hype far surpasses his talent. You know, this guy's 18, nine and one. He's, you know, he's more hype than anything. He is talented, don't get me wrong. But I think that people are gonna kind of get blinded by the amount of hype that he has and assume that he's just this mega superstar who's gonna burst onto the seat and just take over the featherweight division. He's 27 years old. So he still has the potential to improve and get better but I just don't know if it's going to be to the level to where he's going to crack the top ten in the UFC's featherweight division, which is talent-rich and going to be tough for him to crack. But I think he wins this fight. This is a layup. He should get it done. I'm going to say by decision. Next up, we got in another fight in the featherweight division where we got William Gomez going up against Yanis Um Gomez. Uh, 2-0 on the UFC so far, made a successful UFC debut last September where he was able to uh, beat Jarno Aarons over 15 minutes. And then earlier this year, spring the upset against Francis Marshall, a fight where he had a great first two rounds, utilizing his footwork and his long-range weapons to keep Marshall on the outside. And then Marshall was finally able to bite down on the mouthpiece in the third round, get this fight to the ground and do some good work from on top. But unfortunately for him, it was too little too late at that point in time. Gomez normally uses that type of approach in his fights on the regional scene, where he looks to smother his opponents, get them to the ground, and good do good damage from on top. But he also has a sanda background, which is where you see the kicks and his long-range weapons really come into play. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him utilize his grappling this time around to overwhelm his opponent, to take him to the ground, and grind him out. Yanis... You know, not a fighter that jumps off the pace for me. He has a good record of 12 and 1, seems to have a good uh, striking game. He's on a nine fight winning streak, uh, grappling game not the greatest. He's had some close fights as of late as well. Uh, nothing crazy about the kid. You know, I've seen some other folks a little bit higher on him than I am myself, uh, but this fight is a pass for me all in all. You know, you have a guy in Gomez who goes from a plus 200 underdog, springs the upset, and now finds him as the minus 225, minus 250 favorite. That usually doesn't really sit too right with me, right? Like you can't jump on something that's such a market overcorrection no matter who his opponent is. And Yanis is a guy that's still a bit of a question mark. What if he is ready for the step up to the UFC? And what if this is a good matchup for him against Gomez? So I'm going to go with uh, Gomez. Again, uh, over two and a half probably the best way to go about this fight. But I'm going to pick Gomez to win it by decision. All right, next up, we're gonna move over to the light heavyweight division where we got Volkan Uzdemir going up against Bogdan Guskov. Guskov coming in on short notice here, but this is a guy that's on a four-fight winning streak with all four of those wins coming in the first round. The majority of his wins all coming in the first round. 11 of his 14 victories have come in the first round, Uh, but it seems like when he fights, guys are able to give him some resistance. That's where he's not as intimidating or successful. That's where his opponent, uh, Vasilevsky, was able to kind of take advantage of that, hurt him badly, and then finish him in the first round. Uh, He's a power puncher. He's a slugger. He's a brawler. He's a guy that wants to go out there and try to get the knockout. So violence is probably the best way to go in this fight, especially against a guy in Volkan Uzdemir, who we know throws with a lot of power as well. It's been a long time since he's actually recorded a knockout. It's been about four years since we've seen him knock somebody out. But then he's going up against high-level guys, right? Alexander Rakic. Uh, Yuri Prohaska, uh, Magomed Ankalaev, Paul Craig. You know, a fight that was very weird because Paul Craig kept trying to pull guards So it was hard for Uzumir to on really big shots on him. And then obviously the Nikita Kralov fight where he got completely outgrinded that night. I think we'll see Volkan Uzdemir use a combination of his leg kicking game to slow down Guzkov And then really start talking over with the strikes where he should be able to find that no time power again and finish this matchup probably within the first 10 minutes of this fight. I'm going to pick Uzdemir. Uh, Power, huge experience advantage. And I think we'll see a very pissed off version of him coming into this fight, especially considering how his last fight went. All right, moving over to the lightweight division. we got a great grappling matchup here, potentially a grappling matchup, right? When we get two grapplers together, sometimes we get a striking contest. We got Benoit Saint-Denis going up against Thiago Moises in the lightweight division. This is a fun matchup, especially for Saint-Denis, who's on a three-fight winning streak since his ill-fated UFC debut, where he got completely pulverized by by Elysio Zaleski-Dos Santos. Saint-Denis has looked spectacular in that time during this three-fight winning streak by pulling off two submissions and a knockout uh, over his last three fights. He's very aggressive with his grappling. His striking game is pretty much, you know, he he fights from the southpaw position, which usually leaves the body of his opponent open. So he just rips body kicks over and over and over again until he's able to find that opening to take these guys to the ground. I was very impressed with his ability to finish Ismael Bonfim the way that he was. But that's just a testament to how aggressive and dangerous he is when he gets fights into the grappling realm. But a guy that's going to be welcoming that type of approach is Thiago Moises. He's a guy who is 28 years old on a two-fight winning streak of his own where he's finished both of his last two opponents. But a guy that wants to go out there and prove that he can feel or fight guys that have that aggressive approach. Like when he came up short against Joel Alvarez. I think he has a point that he wants to prove in this matchup. He's a high-level BJJ black belt, so I fully expect him to be prepared for that grapple-heavy approach from Saint-Denis. And then in terms of the striking realm, I think Thiago Moises is the better striker. You know, I think that the first round is going to be a very close fight, but I felt, feel like in the second and third rounds, we'll be able to make use of that plus money that we're going to get on Moises. You know, as long as he doesn't get finished early, which, you know, again, Saint-Denis is possible. But if Moises showcases his uh, veteran skill set here, showcases the level of competition and opponents he's faced in the past and what he's been able to endure, he should be able to pull away with this fight late and maybe even find a finish of his own uh, in the latter half of this fight. My ultimate prediction is going to be Moises by decision. But I'd like to plus money in the underdog spot here on Thiago Moises to upset the Frenchman in his hometown. All right, moving on to the co-main event. One that I feel like should be talked about more but it's really not. We got Manon Firo welcoming Rose Nama Yunis to the flyweight division. Firo has been unstoppable since she lost her first fight, her first ever professional fight, which is when she was primarily a striker going up against the grappler in Leah McCord. But since then, she's very much evolved her game and done a great job in terms of stopping takedowns that are coming her way and doing a great job in terms of getting back to her feet and letting off strikes of her own she has an 83% takedown defense rate the only person that was able to take her down in the UFC was Jennifer Maya and she was only able to enjoy about 30 seconds of control but before Firo was able to get back to the feet and get back to her striking game That's her style. She utilizes kind of like a, I want to say karate-ish type stance where she's kind of bouncing in and out and then utilizes a a, a barrage of strikes and then gets back out to distance. It's very difficult for, one, for opponents to deal with the power in which she's throwing with and two, the volume in which she's throwing with as well because it it just meshes together so well. Her footwork is kind of hard to get a, a beat on as well. Her opponent Rose Nam Yunus, is obviously coming off of her title losing fight against Carla Esparza last year very lackadaisical fight you know a fight where um she thought she won but it was you know nothing happened in that fight they combined for a total of 67 significant strikes landed over uh 25 minutes and just for a comparison's sake the fight before that when she won 25 minutes with Zhang Waili they combined for 170 significant strikes that's how low level of a uh, fight the Carlos as fight was. So any little thing kind of swayed it the other way. And luckily for Esparza, she was the one able to get her hand that night. Um, I'm going to lean with Firo here. You know, She's going to have a two-inch height advantage, uh, 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 just an inch reach advantage. But I think it's mainly the power in what she throws and her comfortability in the striking realm. Rose is pretty good with her striking too, but the big kind of caveat with her has been her mental. Like... She's a wild card. She either comes out looking like the best women's fighter in the world or she comes out there and just lays a goose egg like she did against uh, Carla Esparza. But I think this stylistically speaking is a difficult matchup for her. I think she's going to struggle to, one, uh, try to take Firo down. Obviously, her jiu-jitsu is far better than what Firo brings to the table. But it's going to be hard to get your jiu-jitsu going if you can't get the fight to the ground. And I think that's where Rose is going to struggle. I don't think this weight change is a positive thing for Rose. I think she's much more suited for 115 pounds. And I think that Firo will do a good enough job in terms of staying on, uh, staying at distance, letting her power go, and letting the more significant strikes land. I don't have a a boatload of confidence in Firo here because obviously the experience advantage is in the favor of Rose Namajunas. But I think that Firo is on a streak; Momentum is on her side right now. And I think she's been looking career best. And this is her moment to pick up the biggest win of her UFC career and most likely earn a flyweight title shot. So give me Firo by decision. All right. Main event time. Heavyweight division. The hometown kid, Cyril Ghosn. Has another opportunity to pick up his second win under the UFC banner in Petty. He's going up against Sergey Spivak, who is absolutely streaking right now. He has a three-fight winning streak going. This is Spivak. Three-fight winning streak, but he's also 7-1 over his last eight fights. He's been able to finish uh, Greg Hardy, Augusto Sakai, and Derek Lewis over his last three fights. And he's been showcasing that he's getting better in terms of timing his takedowns and really putting the hurting on his opponents from that top position. His striking is slowly coming along, but he's still a little bit slow in plodding in that run, which is where God could potentially have success. He is one of the best strikers that we've seen in the heavyweight division in a long time. His ability to traverse the cage, cut angles and utilize combinations has really stifled opponents in the past. but the big red flag that's been shown over his last three fights is his takedown defense and his lack of kind of uh, resistance off of his back. Obviously, I'm sure that's something that he's been working on throughout this camp and even leading up to the John Jones fight that he had last time around. But I don't know if it's enough for him to overcome what Sergei Spivak is going to be able to do. Spivak is a solid wrestler and he has even better control when he's able to get that takedown. Obviously, I like violence here the most in this matchup. I'm expecting whoever wins to get their hand raised by by knockout or by submission obviously knockout for gone submission for Spivak. um but I'm gonna lean with the grappler you know it's hard for me to really get on the syrogand train, especially at chalk um when he's going up against a legit grappler until we see those legitimate improvements made in his game i can't i can't I can't truly back him in a spot where I feel like he's gonna get all grappled. Like yes, he has a tremendous advantage against Spivak against uh, in the striking realm. But for how long is he going to be able to keep that distance and keep his striking going until Spivak is able to successfully close the distance and get this fight to the ground? Which again, like I don't mind the plus money on Spivak. I kind of like the chalk on the fight doesn't go to the decision minus three fifty, 100 parlay piece, whatever you want to call it. But I think that Spivak is worth a little bit of dog shot here. Um, I expect him to get Cyril to the ground and probably have this fight wrapped up within three rounds. But if he's not able to, if it stays a striking battle, Gon is going to chip away at him. And he's not a one-punch knockout kind of guy like Tom Aspinall was when he was able to finish Spivak. That's why I think that we have more opportunities for Spivak to eventually get this to the ground, is he doesn't have to worry about that one punch that's going to send him flying to the ground. It's that death by a thousand cuts from Siro Ghan, which is how he put away Tai Tuivasa, how he put away guys like Derek Lewis. He can do that to Spivak too. But it's going to take him three, four rounds to do that. And in that amount of time, I have to believe that Spivak can successfully get this fight to the ground, do good damage from on top, and eventually open up like an arm triangle choke or something for himself. So give me Spivak. Spivak by sub. Fight isn't go to decision my favorite spot, but I think that Spivak wins this fight with his grappling. There you guys go. Breakdowns on all 11 fights for UFC Paris. Again, I apologize for the lack of audio quality. I also noticed that it seems like the, the timing of the mic and the cam is off as well. That's just another issue that I got to deal with in terms of this current setup that I have. But once I got the mic uh, set up next week, everything should be back to normal. I'm sure you guys are just glad to get... The breakdowns, get my analysis on these fights, uh, and you will bear with the lack of production quality that I have uh, on this week's uh, content for you guys. I did ramble on a little bit longer than I normally do. Again, I try to aim for that 30 minute mark, which I'll try to get back to next week. Um, but I'm also thinking of doing something else, and I would love to hear the opinion for anybody that's made it this far on the podcast. Um, I'm thinking of doing like this regular breakdown, which probably reaches 45 to 50 minutes, where I go in depth, and then I release a 10-minute breakdown of quick picks, just straight to the point. For example, the Siragun versus Sergey Spivak fight. Spivak has a tremendous grappling advantage, wrestling advantage. He should be able to take this fight to the ground, evade the big shots of Sirogan, uh, look to get the submission or a TKO a stoppage from on top. Sirogan is the or Sergey Spivak is the pick, like something that quick. Just two separate videos. If you want more in-depth breakdowns, I'd point people to the the full MMA lock-ass episodes. But anybody that just wants the quick picks, I'd do like a, you know, 8 to 10 minute video where I just rifle through all the picks real quick with my main driving point in terms of why I think they won their fights. Let me know what you guys think about that. And if you would enjoy having those two different types of segments, I may end up doing it anyway, because I know a lot of people have a short attention span. (laughs) but uh, whatever. We'll see how it is. Again, if you want LFA breakdowns, check the Patreon link uh, in the description below, and I will see you guys a whole lot over the next uh, 48 hours as I drop four more segments for you guys for this UFC Paris card. All right. Hopefully you guys enjoy. Drop a like and subscribe below, and I'll see you guys in a couple hours. Peace. Last thing. But-